Welcome back to another episode of MPMA's Bug Bites, a nerdy news podcast where three entomologists with the National Pest Management Association compete to see who can do the best job at covering a recent science discovery or news headline. I'm one of your co-hosts, Mike Bentley, and I'm joined by my two brilliant co-hosts, Dr. Brittany Campbell. Hey, everybody. And Dr. Jim Fredericks. Hey there. We are joined today by our special guest judge, Timothy Wong with Eminem Environmental. Tim, first off, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I, and I think it's probably the most appropriate venue and stage in front of a potential nationwide or global audience to actually admit that I'm not entirely sure if you prefer to go by Tim or Timothy, because we've known each other for about six years now, and I've called you both. <laughs> so do you have a preference <laughs> so I don't continue to reference you in the wrong way? Tim is completely fine. I, I like that better. Uh, so Tim would be great. My All mother right. used to call me Timothy, right. so. Right, so basically, if you're in trouble, Timothy, if not, then just Tim is good. Exactly. Yes. So thank you. Okay, awesome. Well, well, thanks so much again for agreeing to uh, be on the podcast. I know you said you've had a chance to listen to some some episodes in the past, so which is good because that means that this probably isn't going to be the longest hour of your life while we're recording this, <laughs> which I'm hoping that's the case. So, but I'm sure um, to get us started, just share a little bit about Eminem Environmental, uh, where you guys are located, um, how long you've been in business, and how you got into the industry. Sure, um, you know. First and foremost, thank you for inviting me today. Uh, I'm a big fan of the podcast, and I'm super glad you guys came back this year uh, after being off from COVID um, with a new team. Um, the podcast is not only informative, but incredibly entertaining. So I really enjoy listening to them. So thank you. Um, so as for you know, Eminem Environmental or MNPC, uh, we're based in New York City. Uh, we're comprised of a number of companies that has been in the industry for over 30 years. I personally didn't get involved uh, until about 20 years ago. Uh, prior to entering into this sector, I was an investment banker. Um, but after graduating from business school, I started a private equity firm uh, to buy and sell uh, companies. And um, my background before banking uh, was in fine arts, believe it or not. And I was a, like most artists, I'm driven by this innate and compulsive desire to create things, which has partly led me to this business, uh, discovering like this immeasurable, you know, gratification from creating and making things. So buying companies, making them, building them was kind of like a passion for me. I didn't have Legos growing up. So building and making companies was it. Um, one of the first firms that I purchased was a pest control company. And <laughs> when I... And that's when I realized how much I love the industry. This is one of those kind of uh, industry that is really viewed by most people as being very unsexy. But for me, it was, uh, it was incredible. Um, it was a large and fragmented uh, market with this endless opportunity for room for growth and for specialization. And uh, back 20 years ago, I used to do my research by uh, going to the yellow pages. Yes the yellow pages, right? It doesn't exist anymore these days. Uh, but, uh, you know, then I used to go through the yellow pages, this 10 pound book, this heavy book and flipping through the yellow pages looking for, you know, business ideas. And when I came across the pest control or exterminating section, I was in shock. There was probably like thousands of listings of, of exterminators. 
uh, I mean, probably about 30 to 40, 50 pages of them. And I was like incredibly shocked because I didn't realize how many players was in this industry. And, you know, and judging from the design of the, of the ads and the listing, I knew most of them were, were like small operators uh, or mom and pop shops. Um, while that might sound like a lot of players, I mean, New York City has 8 million people, which is incredible. I mean, 8 million people, that's more than the three biggest cities in the U.S., Chicago, Houston, and, um, and Los Angeles. I mean, it's massive. And we're, and we're all concentrated in an area that is a fraction of each of those cities. So it was, it was a, mass, a massive opportunity. And so when I bought that, uh, my first company, I realized it was, a, you know, it was a, an opportunity to grow. And judging from the players and judging from you know, many of the ugly designs, I realized there wasn't really a quality firm out there that was known to be very reputable and uh, that existed to service this market. So that's when I started to look for more companies to acquire and to build. Um, and the approach that I took, you know, I learned from business school uh, was to really bring in smart people. And we hired uh, and recruited entomologists, industrial hygienists, home inspectors, carpenters, architects, designers, and career customer service people uh, with the goal of building a more discernible and uh, greener brand for, the, for this market that we're in. Um, and after acquiring a few more of these companies, uh, I decided I simply didn't want to sell them anymore. I wanted to, you know, I grew fond of the industry. I, I had a passion for biology when I was in school. Um, and so I, you know, I wanted to build a company where people can retire from. And also I, I really enjoy working with my team and I enjoy working with my clients. Uh, and I felt like an artist all over again uh, from, from school because, you know, it gave me the ability to kind of continue building. Um, and fortunately and unfortunately, as an artist, I never felt my work is done. And every day I get up to chisel away to improve it. Um, but I'm very proud of the, uh, of the brand and the reputation that we have built over the years. And, uh, you know, more importantly, I'm honored to be a guest on your podcast. So thank you. I think that's the first time that anyone's ever said they're honored to be here. Yeah. Um, some people have said thanks, but that was usually at the beginning and not at the end. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Let's see if you share that same enthusiasm in about 40 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And I think that your, um, your desire to kind of constantly improve and kind of stand apart and be different um, uh, from some of your competitors in the industry has always stood out. I remember when you and I first met, I don't know if you remember, but it, it made an impact on me. Um, it was probably... I don't know, eight years ago. And we met in your office because Bob Rosenberg and I were, uh, Bob Rosenberg was the CEO of NPMA at the time. Uh, we were visiting with the New York State Pest Management Association. And we got in the night, bef night before, two nights before we decided, you know, we would stay in New York. And what we did was we picked up the yellow pages and we started to call around to companies and, or, you know, and determine if they were member companies and then just go visit. And we called you and you were gracious enough to host us. And I, I don't even know if you remember, but it made an impact on me. But I remember at the time thinking that um, it was a really cool experience to meet you and see you, uh, you kind of in your, in your element. Uh, so I look back and think that was kind of a fun thing. No, I definitely remember those moments. I remember back then we, we had an office that was located in Lower Manhattan. And it was our third office because we keep growing. And we finally grew to a point that my office was in the basement. I remember bringing you down to the basement 
know. It was, yeah, it was yeah. downstairs. And now yeah. we've fortunately moved to a bigger space, to a 10,000 square feet space in Long Island City. But, uh, but I definitely remember that meeting. It was a very educational, and I was very happy to see that, uh, that the association was really kind of coming into our space and really making a big impact in, you know, really legitimizing and also educating the sector because we needed that cohesiveness and that kind of uh, association to tie in and bring people together, which I was incredibly happy to not only have met you, but also to go to these uh, meetings and go to these uh, conventions every year to learn about the new opportunities and talk to other you know, important leaders and also uh, you know, business managers, because you learn so much from these opportunities and from these venues. So you know, thank you. Yeah. Tim, you mentioned being uh, where your office is located in New York City. What listeners don't know is that we originally had this podcast recording scheduled for a few weeks ago, and uh, a pretty severe storm hit the area and it impacted your business. And I think you said both your business and your home. So I really appreciate you being flexible enough to agree to, to reschedule this and allow us to still kind of keep this going. But how did everything turn out? I know that you said there was some serious flooding. I know that most of New York City was, was really hit hard by it. Um, I know that you're in a different location now. How did everything turn out with, with your home and your business and everything? Oh, thanks for asking. It turned out to be fine after all. I mean, we lost two vehicles. It's, you know, when you live in New York City, it's kind of funny because there's so many news. There's always a siren going on. And there's always some type of tragedy. If you open the news, there's always saying something bad's going to happen. But usually you kind of ignore it because it doesn't really happen sometimes. Right? You have storms, you have hurricanes, you have floods. But this, we didn't anticipate this one. And uh, I, I think the problem was that we didn't realize that the subways were going to be flooded. We didn't realize the streets in some of the areas in Brooklyn was going to be flooded. And so we had a couple of vehicles most of our vehicles are in lots indoors, but then we do have vehicles that are located outside, like in Brooklyn, maybe some of them in Manhattan. And those lots, they just had about two, three feet of uh, water. And so some of our cars started floating away. And uh, our office is, was generally fine, but then what happened was there was so much rain that a lot of the storm drains kind of flooded. So we had some leaks in the office, uh, in my home as well. But um, Unfortunately, everything worked out. Um, I'm glad that we were able to reschedule because, uh, you know, this was, I was looking forward to it. So I just didn't anticipate that big, massive storm. Yeah, well, it, even without the storm, I know that you're constantly busy and you have a million things going on trying to run this constantly growing business. So we really appreciate you, you know, making the time for this and, and certainly are, are really glad to hear that everything ended up okay with with both your work family and your and your home family. Thank you. So. Well, you uh, you ready to go ahead and get started? We'll, we'll get down to business here and, and get started with our game? Absolutely. Okay, so just as a quick refresher, essentially each one of us is going to take about five minutes to cover our chosen uh, news article or scientific discovery uh, from the last month or so. Um, and uh, so we'll each go through, we'll have our five minutes. And at the end of that, if you've got any questions at all, we'll stop and take questions. Uh, otherwise, we'll move on to the next uh, co-host. And then once the three of us are done, we'll turn it back over to you and you get to make the decision to determine who you thought was the best. Um, the way that we usually do this is the winner from last time always goes first. And then there's some sort of uh, very intense rock, paper, scissors game. Uh, we finally remembered this time to get that taken care of off of off of recording <laughs> uh, to determine who's going to be second and third place. So I much like I'm going to do today in the actual episode, I crushed Jim. So I'm going to choose to go third 
Jim is going to go second and Brittany's going to go first. So she's going to lead us off for today's uh, official game. So you, that sound good to you? Ready. You have any questions? No, I'm ready. Okay. All right, Dr. Campbell, I'm going to turn it all over to you now. It's all yours. All right. I'm going to see if I can break a new record and do this under two minutes and still convey the information. Wow. We'll see. Yeah, I know, right? I'm afraid I've already set myself up for failure, but we'll, we'll see. So the title of my paper is Artificial Accumulation of Leaf Litter in Forest Edges on Residential Properties via Leaf Blowing is associated with increased numbers of host-seeking Ioxides scapularis nymphs. All right, so this paper was published by Robert Jordan and Terry Schultz in the Journal of Medical Entomology in March of 2020. But this paper is timely for right now, especially in the Northeast as fall is upon us and leaves are beginning to change color and drop to the ground. It is well known that Ioxides scapularis which is the black-legged tick and the main transmitter of Lyme disease, prefers habitats in yards where there are transitional areas or woodland edges where the manicured lawn meets the edge of the forest. These areas with more dense vegetation and leaf litter on the ground creates a perfect little microclimate for these ticks. So in these areas, you have increased humidity and lower temperatures that these ticks really prefer. So we're gonna to talk today about habitat management for ticks and how specifically blowing leaves impacts black-legged tick populations. So the researchers for this paper chose three residential homes that were around one hectare each. And that uh, in these homes or these yards, about 50 to 75% of the yard was forested and the rest was lawn or landscaping. This was a two-year study with multiple plots selected on the properties that were either managed uh, which meant that the leaves were blown into the plots and then plots at the natural edge of lawn and forest. And then they also had just forested plots. Half of the plots had leaves blown into them each year and the other half was left unmanaged with just normal natural leaf fall. The researchers then went out and they did tick drags uh, which is where the researchers basically took these large white sheets and drug them along the ground to catch the ticks. And then they took the ticks back through the lab, counted the number of ticks, and then identified them to species. So in the transitional areas where leaves were blown into the plots, the researchers found that there were three times as many black-legged ticks. So when you're talking to homeowners about habitat management for ticks, you probably want to advise them not to blow their leaves into the edge of their landscape. And if they can, if they can bag their leaves and leave them at the curbside, if they have city pickup, encourage them to do that or suggest them to compost their leaves in like one designated area that's not frequented by people to limit tick encounters in the yard. Wow. All right. <clears throat> Two minutes and 30 seconds. That was very impressive. Thank wow. you. Very speedy. Now, can I ask questions, Dr. Campbell? Absolutely. So when they collected the samples, did they use the same methodology? They did, yeah. So when they went out and they took those tick drags with those big sheets, they did it the, the same way in all of the plots. So they had about... Um, so they had, you know, let's imagine you have one backyard and then in that single backyard, they have a 
couple of plots that are in those transitional areas, a couple of plots that they've marked off in the forest, and then a couple plots in the actual manicure like lawn area. And so replicated that with you know, different yards. So they have multiple plots to look at, but they did everything the exact same way. And they didn't just do tick drags once they went and did them multiple days in a row. So they had a lot of data. So, you know, three backyards, multiple plots in the backyards, and then data uh, for tick collections over multiple days. Okay. So it was definitely conclusive that the, the number of ticks was definitely higher versus the methodology of collecting where they were hiding. Absolutely. Yeah. And something that was really interesting, they kept focusing on the black legged tick. Obviously that's a big focus because of Lyme disease, especially in the Northeast. Um, But they also looked at um, another tick species and they found that Amblyoma americanum, I'm not going to pronounce that correctly, Um, But this particular tick species that they looked at as well, another important tick uh, that spreads disease, they found that it wasn't as impacted by leaf blowing. Uh, This species actually doesn't have the same humidity requirements. So we're like always focused on dense vegetation, but those ticks like to really hang out in natural forested areas. So uh, researchers really didn't spend a lot of time on that, but something to consider, like we're really focused on Lyme disease. Well, there's other ticks that are in these surrounding habitats that have different requirements. Fascinating, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, cool. uh, Brittany, I have a, <laughs> I have a question. It better not be you. hard, Jim Fredericks. <laughs> it's not hard. It's not hard. Um, you did a great job on the Amblyoma americana. Thank you. Um, could could you tell me what the species name of the black-legged tick is again? It's just the genus. I can't say it right. <laughs> I keep saying I, I oxidy oxidy. I don't know how to say it. You say it. No, I'm try, sorry. try it one more time without all this laughing. I want. No, I'm not doing it again. Tell me the correct way to. Pr- I'm not. A- I think it might just be your Georgia accent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it again. Let me hear you say it. Ixodes. Ixodes. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, I was definitely having a, a southern slang there. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Totally. I, totally. I thought it, was, I it. it sounded like a Chattanooga accent. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I wonder how long it would have taken you if you would have pronounced the name right. How long? But two minutes and 30 seconds is our new. It's pretty impressive. Record. Yeah, that's. Wow. It, this has been the hardest challenge, Tim, is to, to figure out how to explain everything in five minutes or less. And usually we're going over. So this is that's. Oh. that's that yeah, good. seriously. Uh, lucky that um, Brittany took uh, or did that quickly because I never can seem to get it done <laughs> under five minutes ever, no matter how hard I try. That doesn't mean that you guys get an extra minute now. Oh, two and a half minutes that we can split evenly amongst mm-hmm. us. So. Okay. <laughs> We will do our best. All right. You ready for mine, Tim? Yes. Um, let me turn off my uh, my phone ringer here. Um, all right. So my paper this week is titled Fish Released Caramones Affect Mosquito Overposition and Larval Life History. So um, this paper, I'm going to start my timer. This paper 
uh, was published uh, just this past August in the Journal of Medical Entomology and was performed by Alan Silverbush at the University of Haifa in Israel. Uh, it's known that several species of mosquitoes will avoid laying eggs in bodies of water that contain fish that feed on mosquito larvae. Because chemical signals travel better through water than visual or auditory cues, mosquito species will often rely on chemical signals to determine if it's suitable for egg laying or to determine the density of other competing mosquitoes in the water. Uh, these chemical cues are referred to by biologists as caramones. So caramones are chemicals that are emitted by a species that are detected by a member of another species. And that second species gains an advantage from that information. So for instance, think of a parasitic wasp that's queuing in on a cockroach egg case uh, based on odor cues. Um, it's using caramones or it's following caramones. This is different from pheromones, which are chemical cues emitted by an organism that affects the behavior of a member of its own species. Um, and in this case, think of the chemical cues found in German cockroach frass that might act as an arrestant or an aggregation cue for other German cockroaches. But enough vocab vocabulary. It's known that mosquitoes avoid bodies of water that contain mosquito-eating fish, but it, sometimes um, this is in response to only certain species of fish and not other equally dangerous fish. Um, a good example of this is uh, Culex pipiens, um, the house mosquito, um, which is common, we're, we're familiar with it uh, here in the US. Um, it will avoid caramones from some predators, some predatory fish, but not others. So this study in particular set out to determine if mosquitoes could detect the differences between predaceous fish and herbivorous fish and alter their egg laying behaviors accordingly. The researchers set up plastic pools filled with water that were then dosed with rodent chow. Um, so, so rat food, like pet rat food. And apparently this makes the water more attractive to the species in question here, which is Culicida longiareolata. How do you like that one, Brittany? I have no <laughs> clue if I said that right. Showing off. Um, this mosquito is widely distributed and highly competitive and is abundant in Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Uh, these mosquitoes tend to prefer feeding on birds, but will also bite humans and other animals. Um, in each of these uh, pools, they introduced wild caught fish, but they put the fish into cages so they wouldn't eat the mosquitoes. Uh, some pools contain the Western mosquito fish, which is native to North and South America, uh, but was actually introduced into other parts of the world to reduce mosquito populations in the early 20th century. It's now, by the way, considered one of the most widespread and invasive species in the old world. Um, other pools contained the iridescent tooth carp, which, by the way, according to Wikipedia, is a species of killfish, which just sounds awesome. Um, that's a native fish uh, to that region known to feed on aquatic invertebrates, um, and mis including mosquitoes. While the other pools contained a vegetarian, the red gara, which is known to be um, um, a vegetarian, eats, eats plants, and is assumed to be no threat to mosquitoes. Um, the researchers then inspected and removed uh, mosquito egg rafts and counted them each morning. Um, the results show that the female uh, mosquitoes were strongly repelled by caramones um, by both the native iridescent tooth carp and the exotic western mosquito fish, um, but they were not repelled by the red gara. 
which is an algae eater. So that kind of makes sense. And it indicates that the mosquitoes were able to distinguish between the predaceous and non-threatening fish species. Uh, the larvae in this study were all also exhibited a 13% reduction in survival and delayed metamorphosis when they were raised in water that contained the fish-released caramones. So at this point, reading the paper, I was like, sweet, like we can just spray fish juice from airplanes and repel mosquitoes and keep them from laying eggs. Problem solved. Right. But as is often the case in science, it's not that simple. Um, it's also been shown in other species that mosquitoes um, that typically lay eggs in temporary water sources that normally wouldn't contain fish are not affected by caramones from predatory fish because fish just aren't going to be found in a temporary container like a gutter or a bird bath where they breed. Um, additionally, uh, though predatory fish avoidance is likely an important factor in overposition site selection, it's not the only one. Some mosquito species may select a pool with predatory fish if they can reduce the levels of competition from other mosquitoes. Um, you know, they might, you know, for instance, they, you know, to put it in our terms, they might choose a dangerous neighborhood to raise their kids, even if uh, because there's more food for them and fewer other kids around to steal their lunch money. Uh, so. It turns out to be a really cool study with potential to add information to the body of knowledge about mosquito uh, overposition site selection, but it probably won't immediately impact the way we control mosquitoes. It does, however, teach us that a couple of new words, right? Caramones and my favorite, the iridescent tooth carp, which, by the way, if you Google it, is pretty, uh, but it's not as scary looking as the name might imply. Wow, I have 49, Jim. Oof. Wow. <clears throat> I just can't stop talking. And, and Brittany, I have a suspicion that Jim originally wasn't going to read the Latin name of that mosquito, but he only added it in to show off after <laughs> his dig on you previously. So I have no idea if I said that right. That was a hard one. It had like four or five vowels in a row, and I skipped it uh, the <laughs> second time. I, I, I meant to say it again, like to show off. And then I was like, I'm not doing it. Cause I don't even know yeah. if I did it right. The first, I time. mean, listeners, if you're coming here to learn how to pronounce things, you are not doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> I wow. still don't know how to say the name of one of the most problematic ticks. So I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Black legged tick. Just go with there that. we go. Boom. Done. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no. Tim. Did you have any questions? <laughs> No, that was really good, Jim, I thought. I didn't feel like five, uh, longer than five minutes. Um, and it's fascinating in terms of the, the caramones. Um, you know, what I'm interested in finding out was that you, you're right. If they probably don't have uh, an immediate use of the data, but they probably can use it for something. Um, but I wonder why they didn't do this. So they actually imported the fish into this body of water to do this experiment, and they kept them in cages. Uh, so that they wouldn't eat the mosquito mob base. Right, exactly. Um, so what they did, they was, oh, I'm sorry, that wasn't your question. Was that your question? No, no. Well, that was, that was my question, but I was interested in finding out, like, what would be the uh, environmental impact for actually releasing fishes that are not commonly found in these body of water to control the mosquito, because that impact might be significant, right? So, um, so that, yeah, well, that was that something is. that both of these fish, like when, um, when these fish are in a body of water, they will like, they will decimate the, the mosquito population in the water. And in fact, um, the, um, this mosquito in question here, Culacida longiariolata, that's from memory, um, is, um, it's one of its only predators are these fish. 
Um, and so it's, it's really tuned into these fish and um, uh, the, the exotic fish, um, it, the Western mosquito fish is actually has been, it's a North and South American fish that's been imported to the old world, to, uh, to Europe, Africa, Middle East. Um, and it's become invasive. It's actually become a pest of its own and displaces other fish through competition. Um, and so, you know, when it comes to biological control, it can be, um, it can be a really great technique, um, but sometimes there's unintended consequences. So the, there's a lot of controls now, as opposed to the early, early 20th century, when that fish was imported around the world, ton of controls now to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, uh, so wow. uh, yeah, pretty, pretty neat stuff. Hey, Jim, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but do you know how far a mosquito would lay a larvae into a body of water from land? Oh, um, you know, I don't know that. So like middle of a lake or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, um, I think there are, and I'm not a mosquito expert, Mike might have a better answer just from general knowledge. But um, one of the things I do know is when when ponds and retention ponds or backyard ponds are being designed, um, they're designed in a way that the water gets deep fast because there's usually a cutoff. They like to be in shallower water rather than deep water. And so I suspect that, you know, once you get away from the shorelines, um, you're going to have very few mosquitoes out in the middle of any body of water. Hmm. Mike's nodding his head. Yeah, yeah. sounds about right. <laughs> so, no, I, I, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty much the case. I mean, it, it, different species look for different bodies of water, but if you're going to find the mosquitoes that prefer like a lake or a flood area, that's same thing. Like they're not going to look for an open deep water source. Think about it in terms of the mosquito larvae are feeding off the bottom and they're trying to avoid predators. So something shallow with grass and everything else intermixed gives them a better chance for survival. Yeah, no, I, I find it interesting because I want, I wonder in terms of the way of controlling them, um, would you reduce the population by 13% in that body of water, but will you reduce the population by 13% overall because they'll find alternative areas to lay the eggs? Yeah. Well, interesting. So, um, they, what, and part of that larval survival difference is not based on the, the fish eating those larvae. It's just the larvae die when they're exposed to this, the, the, I don't know, the chemical of wow. these predatory fish, like the, um, I don't know if it's the taste or the, it's not the smell in the water, but it's that chemical in the water. They have a 13% re, uh, uh, reduction in survivorship of the mosquitoes and they, and they develop more slowly. And part of that's because um, there's probably a, I'm, I'm hypothesizing now, but there's probably a behavioral change there. And when predators are present, they will um, eat less, because I have to, like Mike said, that you're going to go to the bottom, feed on, you know, whatever kind of detritus or whatever it is that they're feeding on. And so they'll stay hidden more. And so as a result, there's a reduction in survivorship. So, I mean, it's like fascinating stuff. And it just adds to the body of knowledge about mosquitoes and behavior and how everything is interacting. But it's really, really cool. And that's why I wanted to share it. Wow. No, that is interesting. I didn't, I didn't catch that last part until now. So thank, thanks for stressing that out. There's a huge difference between between the two. So, wow, interesting. Thank you. Yeah, Jim, that's really cool. Uh, one comment, just, uh, I can't get the idea of airplane spraying fish juice around out of my head. So I just have to say like, <laughs> all for biological control and everything. But as soon as we start spraying fish juice around like my house, I'm gonna start picketing and rioting. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, there might be some uh, complications <laughs> with that. I mean, you think, uh, people people start picketing when you start to do like uh, uh, normal conventional mosquito control. Wait till we oh, start yeah. spraying. Yes. <laughs> that needs to be refined. So I'm going to probably work on doing that. Maybe we'll get back to you on that technique. Very good point. Well, the discussion of these, uh, the, the fish being potentially invasive is a perfect lead in into the paper that I am covering today. Uh, which was published in July of 2021 in the Journal of Insect Science by a team of researchers out of the Department of Land Resources and Environmental Sciences at Montana State University. And the title is Risk Assessment for the Establishment of Vespa Mandarinia, I think that's how you say it, in the Pacific Northwestern United States. So Vespa mandarinia, otherwise known as the Asian giant hornet, is the world's largest hornet species capable of reaching up to a whopping two inches in length. The species is native to Asia, where it commonly feeds on other insects, sap, soft fruits, and is also notorious for its behavior to feed on honeybee hives or attack honeybee hives for protein when the Asian giant hornet colonies are starting to ramp up colony development in late summer and fall. This massive insect became a household name in 2018 when it first was confirmed in Vancouver, British Columbia, and then later confirmed in Whatcom County, Washington State in late 2019. Since then, the Washington State Department of Agriculture has developed a system to track, locate, and destroy these nests, with the most recent nest, at least at the time of this podcast being recorded, being found and destroyed in Blaine, Washington on August 17, 2021. Now, that's all of the detail that I'm going to go into about that process because at Pest World 2021, we've actually got one of the um, one of the people that is on this team, this eradication team that is going to be coming to Pest World and talking about the process that they've developed um, and pioneered for how they're actually tracking and eradicating these nests. So I don't want to step on her toes or take away any of the thunder. So if you want to learn more about that process, check out that session at Pest World. Now, because the Asian giant hornet is known to attack honeybees, beekeepers in the Pacific Northwest are understandably worried about the risk that they may pose to the European honeybee hives that are, um, that are there. And as is the case with most invasive species, there's certainly concern that the Asian giant hornet may also begin to outcompete native wasp species if they were to successfully establish in this region in the U.S. So there's a full-scale effort currently underway to locate and eradicate the hornet in the United States and Canada. Now, to try to stay one step ahead of the Asian giant hornet's invasion, a team of researchers at uh, Montana State University have conducted a risk assessment study to determine where the Asian giant hornet would most likely become established in several states in the Pacific Northwest. Those states are Washington, Oregon, Montana, and Idaho. So this initial risk assessment is only looking at counties within these four states. In other words, they essentially built a predictive map to help pinpoint what counties would be at most risk for invasion. To build this predictive map, the researchers looked at a number of important environmental factors that are commonly included in things like this, like air temperature, forest cover, which would also help them to identify what locations would have the right conditions for nesting sites. They also considered some pretty interesting factors that were really specific to the invasion of the Asian giant hornet, including the location of apiaries, which could serve as a potential food source, as well as where shipping ports and freight distribution hubs were located. Since it's widely believed that the Asian giant hornet could have been accidentally brought over as a stowaway on shipping containers on ships, these ports could serve as a primary potential point of introduction or reintroduction 
for this massive invader. Now, using some pretty sophisticated mathematical modeling software that I might as well just describe as magic because it's very complicated and I don't have the understanding necessary to explain exactly how the mathematical modeling software work. Um, the research team entered all this information into the program and they were able to assess where these risk factors could overlap across different counties so they could help to build this map to generate what they were calling an overall risk rating score for each county. They then used those scores to generate a predictive map that identified 32 individual counties across all four states that were either seen as low, medium, or high risk for the Asian giant hornet. Now, it probably won't be very useful for me to list off these 32 counties. I'm not from that area, so that wouldn't be familiar with me. Um, <clears throat> and it probably wouldn't be useful for the podcast. But I, what we will do is I will include a link to this map and this information in the blog posting that will accompany this, um, this review of this paper. Um, so while, while there was still a lot of information, I, there was one interesting thing that they that the authors did point out that I do want to mention really quick, and it was that the modeling approach they use, so there's a bunch of different modeling programs and approaches um, that, that mathematically calculate these factors and variables and give them weights in different ways. Now, they specifically used a modeling approach that is um, probably overestimated the risk for uh, invasion for these counties, but they did that specifically because there's such a great risk for this thing if it were to become established and start uh, to colonize there, um, that they figured that it was better to be overcautious than underprepared. And the important thing um, with this is that you know there's still a lot of learn a lot to learn about the potential distribution for the Asian giant hornet in the U.S. But this risk assessment serves as an invaluable tool in the fight to eradicate the invasive hornet because it helps management officials to prioritize those areas where they should focus their monitoring and control efforts most. So the idea here is it's better to be overcautious um, than, than under undercautious in terms of where they're trying to assess their, their inspections with this. So. Mike, you were right on time, man. Very you were like at five minutes, including the best world plug. It's very, very close. <clears throat> Tim, do you have uh, questions for Mike? Yeah, does the Asian giant hornet have any beneficial factors to the environment or they're completely invasive? Here in, we're in an environment where they're not native, there's no other natural predators to suppress the populations and things like that. They're only viewed as a risk in this case because their potential to um, you know, outcompete native species, which you know live and survive in this environment where there is a balance between predators and prey in this native environment um with the native species as well as the risk to the european honeybee um which is a pretty important pollinator and, and commercialized and um commercial apiaries and things especially in the, in the pacific northwest so i think it's only being viewed as a major risk at this point there's certainly this uh you know public health fear too they're they're massive i mean they're two inches in length um you know they they were uh, incorrectly labeled as the murder hornet early on, um, which I hate even referencing that term because it widely mischaracterizes their threat. To be honest with you, I mean, if anybody's allergic to a honeybee, a single sting can be potentially fatal. It doesn't have to be some two inch long hornet, but these things are terrifying to, to see. I mean, I would I would not want to run into one of these things and I'm, it packs a pretty powerful punch from what I've been told, so. Wow, fascinating story. <laughs> Um, did they did they associate the uh, monetary value in the terms of, in terms of potential loss as a result of these Asian giant hornets? I didn't I missed that if you said that. 
So I, they didn't reference anything. So this study was just looking at trying to paint the picture for a predictive map for, hey, here's the counties that are at the greatest risk based on all this other stuff we figured out. So these are the counties that should be on high alert and actively monitoring and have a program in place for if they do find something, they can immediately uh, you know, alert the Washington Department of Agriculture for, for control effort. Um, there are some really, really neat studies that have monetized the damage and monetary costs of, of what you know, it, an invasive species can do. And, and we're talking billions of dollars annually in, in terms of damages and loss and ecological threats and, and all sorts of things that go into that. But this specific paper didn't look at that. Wow. Very interesting. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, that's... That's really cool stuff, Mike. And it, you know, we need those kind of tools because um, I know people people are concerned about that particular one. It gets it's just a ton of press, um, but it also has it could have some severe ecological impacts if it uh, if it does become established and 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 spread. So um, that's good info. Thanks for that. All right. Well, I think it's uh, I think it's time to figure out who is going to be crowned uh, the nerd king or queen for this episode. So. Wow, it's really hard because I found all three uh, stories, um, the way you guys uh, related it was incredible. It's very clear. Um, I learned a lot on each of them, so it's just tough. Um, I thought this this month, Jim, you were, you were very good in terms of making it very easy to understand, um, I think, from a lot of you. Because sometimes I have to listen to some of your stories twice because of just the Latin words alone, we, throw me off and uh, uh and mike yours was great in terms of how you narrated it and, and Brittany's yours was great because of the way it was it was actually very concise and deliberate and you kind of had a conclusion at the end so you knew what to do uh where with the study um if i would have to choose and this is very close um i would say only because of the fact that it was easier to digest and also um, fascinating from my perspective. Again, this is subjective. Uh, I would say, Jim, Jim, you. Uh, never right. <laughs> I was afraid. I was really afraid that you were going to give me um, negative points for going over and picking on Brittany. But uh, <laughs> but I'm, I, I'm, I think you made the right decision. Jim, <laughs> I know that you were narrating and you didn't have a chance, but I was locked in on Jim's face. So just a little bit of background. Jim hasn't won in a while. So I think emotionally, Jim really needed to go through a drought. He needed the W to just psychologically to make it make it through the next episode. But I will tell you, watching the emotional roller coaster on his face because you started off acknowledging his paper. And I, I also thought, oh, he's giving the win to Jim. So I could tell yeah. Jim thought that too. And then as soon as you transitioned into kind of summarizing my efforts as well, you could just see the sinking <laughs> expression on his face when he realized he's not telling me I won. He's just congratulating me for doing a good job. <laughs> <laughs> I totally thought it was a participation trophy. Like you can see right through me. It's amazing. I must wear my emotions on my sleeve. Tim, good job. I think you're one of the, I mean, honestly, one of the best guests we've ever had. <laughs> I'm sure that's completely subjective. Um, you know, it was great because, you know, it didn't feel like it was longer than five minutes for one. And two, you really brought it back home by talking about other species and about the roaches and also the hammer home of the difference between the pheromone and the pheromone, which is not very intuitive to a lot of people, uh, even if you're in the industry. So I thought I really appreciated that. So 
And that's why I kind of gave you the edge a little bit. But uh, otherwise, I did, Brittany and Mike, you guys did a great job. I was really captivated by your stories. And I'm really interested about the tips as well, because I, I have more questions I want to ask you about the tip, uh, Brittany, but I figure I'll ask you that later. But, you know, but thank you. That was, that was, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> thank you, Tim. And good job, Jim. Yeah, well done. I, I think I'm finally at, I've reached a level of maturity in my life in this episode, in this podcast recording, where I can admit that I, I think yours probably was the, the most interesting <laughs> paper to cover. Uh, I mean, mine was great, but I, you, you're, the topic of your paper was really interesting, Jim. So, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Michael, if um, you're I'm story... just going to take a few. Oh, go ahead. Go I'm, ahead sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just goofing around. Yeah. Go ahead. No, yeah, you got to cut say, Jim but... off. He's he's on cloud nine right now. He's just going to be floating <laughs> around for the rest of the day. He's not even going to be able to fit out the door. His head's going to be so big by the time we're done recording this. You know, I, I think Mike, you, you had a great story, but you know, if it was a little bit more conclusive, a little bit further along, when I had like more to do with the data. I think it would have been a great story too. You know, I think uh, Jim focused on a story that actually concluded the study. And I, I didn't know was if the map or the or the statistic that they ran was if it was accurate or not, and what they were going to do with it. So I was kind of left of a cliffhanger. So that's why I think I chose that. It was deep, great. Tim. Otherwise, I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, just kidding. You're good. <laughs> Tim, do you have any, I think that's really a good critique of Mike's talk. Um, do you have any critiques for Brittany? Maybe, uh, <laughs> just kidding. Honestly, just tell me more about what you like. I just want to hear more about Exoctodoctodoctodies, Scalapodilaris. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm done. You did great, Brittany. You did great. Despite no, what Jim says, you did a fantastic job. I you did great. Constructive criticism, and I also feel like this podcast has helped me grow as a person and professionally. So I really appreciate the feedback. Oh, all right, all right. You know what? Getting we're, deep in we're, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna have to lay down on the couch, and uh, <laughs> and and we're gonna go into some psychoanalysis. Um, everybody, everybody did a good job, and yeah. Tim did the best job, of course, by choosing the winner. Uh, Hey, Tim, we have a special treat for you this week. You are going to be our guinea pig if you have just a few more minutes to spend with us. Sure. All right, good. Uh, Mike, you want to take this uh, this game? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. So um, we have a new game that not even Jim and Brittany really know about yet. I had an idea for something that uh, we're going to try. going to do a dry run of this. Uh, we're going to see how it goes. And... Um, if it works out and it's as fun as I, at least I think it's going to be in my mind, this may be something that we do on more episodes. But we always joke around about how complicated and ridiculous some publication titles can be. You know, that's and our main focus of this is to that's why we don't even start our five minute timer until after we've read the title, because oftentimes the titles can be these crazy tongue twisters full of Latin names or complicated scientific jargon that we barely even understand and have to, you know, Google half of what it means, right? So I thought it would be really funny to um, give our guest four publication titles, so four peer-reviewed published titles, and one of them will be completely made up. The other three will be real, and I'm going to read them to you. And there's the, no risk, no reward. You just you get to pick which one you think is the fake one. Okay. So pretty, pretty straightforward. All right. So 
potential, and we don't even have a name for this yet. It's, it's so uh, potential fake title number one, the effect of distance between cellulose and soil on bait discovery in Reticulatermes flabapes and Reticulatermes malati in laboratory assays. Potential fake title number two, <laughs> laboratory evaluation of land speed records on common kitchen counter surfaces for the German cockroach Blatella germanica. Potential fake title number three, locomotion inhibition of Cymex lectularius following topical sublethal dose application of the chitin synthesis inhibitor lufiniron, or potential fake title number four, behavioral phototaxis of previtelogenic and vitelogenic mosquitoes to light emitting diodes. Now, if at any point in time you want me to repeat any of those, I would be more than happy to. <laughs> Please don't repeat any of those. <laughs> I need, I need my co-host to remain oh. stoic and silent, please, while our guest evaluates the four ridiculous titles that I just read him. Wow, this is really hard. Um, I don't think it's, I, I think the second one is probably real. Um, it's, it's the most easiest to digest. Um, if I had to choose probably number one, there's absolutely no way it could be real. Jim, do you want to let him know if number one is real or fake? Uh, yeah, that, so what the joke is that number one is actually the title of my dissertation. Oh, no. <laughs> I didn't get it. And then, I, oh my God, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. So, so Tim, the real answer, uh, or the fake title is actually publication number two. There is no oh, laboratory no. evaluation of land speed records of common kitchen counter surfaces for German cockroaches. <laughs> However, the title for publication one, the effect of distance between cellulose and soil on bait discovery in Reticulatermes flabapes and Reticulatermes malati in laboratory assays was the title of Jim's dissertation. <laughs> Publication number three, locomotion inhibition of Cymex lactillarius following topical sublethal dose application of the chitin synthesis inhibitor lufiniron was one of Brittany's publications. And behavioral phototaxis of vitelogenic and previtelogenic mosquitoes to light emitting diodes was my thesis title. Oh, wow. <laughs> so wow. as much as we rag on the scientific community for doing a ridiculous <laughs> job at titling their things, we are all guilty of it. That's for sure. That's hilarious. Well I'm going to write a paper Mike. on the locomotive cockroaches. Wow. That's great. <laughs> wow. There was like three or four members of my um, my dissertation committee that I needed to convince that that's, this wasn't fake research <laughs> as well, Tim. So it's, it's not surprising that you guessed mine. Well, um, it's memorable, I guess. <laughs> well, the nice thing is they didn't even know that I was doing this. So it's oh, like... Wow. Yeah, this was a surprise to them, too. That's why I asked them to stop laughing, because they didn't realize the joke until after uh, I started to read the title. So what a great game. <laughs> Thank you. Right. That, that, that is fun. Unfortunately, that's like the extent of my publication. So you're not going to be able to. That's the beginning and the end of that. Game. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do want to mention um, poor Brittany got picked out a little bit earlier. So I think this is probably good to throw this in there. So, Jim, of course, yeah, I Google. The Google Scholar, yours to find your publication. There was the one, so I listed it. 
did for me. I'm like, all right, I've got like just a couple here. Brittany's, it was like, all right, which of these 14 do I want to select from? Which one of these sounds the most fake? <laughs> so there was a, there was quite a long list of publications to have to select from, from Brittany's and Jim, you and I didn't have the same problem. So. Yeah. Yeah. Brittany is definitely the most well-credentialed. Yeah. Um, of our group. I'm just honestly, I'm glad I retired though. I'd much rather be doing this with you guys. So appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks for coming down to our level, Britt. <laughs> this was a lot of fun. Well, it it was a lot of fun, and it is a lot of fun to work with these guys. Um, and it's been a blast to have you on the podcast uh this month. Uh, Tim, um, we really do appreciate your time. I know we've probably taken up more of it than you anticipated giving us this morning, uh, but we uh, but we definitely had a, had a blast. Um, we hope you'll be able to join us again sometime. We're going to look forward to seeing you um, at Pest World, where you're giving a talk. Yes, right. Yes, I am. Uh, so you are a featured speaker also at Pest World in Las Vegas, uh, November second and third, uh, November second through the fourth. Um, we want to see everybody there. Second to the fifth. It's beginning of November in Las Vegas. Show up at the end of October. Stay until December. You will not be. You will not be. Uh, you will not be disappointed. Uh, but Tim, really, thanks for joining us today. We really do appreciate it and had a ton of fun. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, guys. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Okay, everybody. Well, that's a wrap for another episode of NPMA's Bug Bites podcast. Okay, and if you found this research super interesting. Be sure to head on over to npmapestology.com where you can take a deeper dive into the research that we presented today. That's right. And be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the release of our next new episode. And speaking of next episodes, our next episode that we record will be a live recording of an audience participation podcast episode that we're going to be holding live and in person at Pest World 2021 in Las Vegas this year. So uh, if you happen to be in Vegas, you're going to be at Pest World, please come by and join us. We'd love to uh, interact with the audience live for that recording. Thanks so much for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you all hopefully in Vegas. Take care. MPNA Bug Bites is the industry source for the latest in science news and pest control research. It's brought to you by the National Pest Management Association. You can find the links to the science discussed in this episode, as well as the technical and business resources, training opportunities, and information about careers in pest control by visiting mpnapestworld.org.